was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I'm honored to be joined by our guest, Broadway dancer Carolyn Kirsch. Carolyn Kirsch has appeared in the original productions of such legendary shows as How to Succeed, Coco, Promises, Promises, Hallelujah Baby, Sweet Charity, Dear World, A Chorus Line, Happy New Year, and more. She also appeared in The Folie Bergère, La Grosse Valise, and starred opposite Zero Mostel in Ulysses in Nighttown. She was in the original cast also of two legendary shows that closed out of town, Breakfast at Tiffany's and Lolita My Love. She appeared as Velma in the national tour of Chicago and also appeared on the road in Peter Pan and Company. And in addition to all this, Miss Kirsch will be appearing, no relation by the way, will be appearing in tonight's Backstage Babble Trivia Night in partnership with Dancers Over 40, which you can find a link to in the episode description. So even if you can't come tonight at 7 p.m., it will stay up forever, so I hope you will enjoy both this episode and that event. How did you first get interested in theater? I think it was a great outlet for a little kid in Pensacola, Florida, New Orleans. I was raised in that neck of the woods, Um, and artistically, I was informed by New Orleans, the music and the color and the light and the French Quarter and the dance in the streets and everything. And um, politically, I was informed by Pensacola, Florida, which meant I wanted to get out of it as quickly as possible. (laughs) I didn't like uh, what was going on down there. So um, dance became uh, my outlet. I was an only child uh, coming from two parents who fought a lot. It was tempestuous in my household. And um, it was a great way for me to go to a beautiful place and learn wonderful things, hear classical music, which was live. There was a pianist in the dance studio. Um, And once I got there, I stayed. Yeah. So were you able to see a lot of theater or a lot of dance growing up in Florida? Not really. I mean, it was really my ballet school. That was, uh, you know, I saw the recitals and I saw, you know, there wasn't much of touring companies coming through or anything in Pensacola. It was a Navy town. Uh, The arts were pretty much in a deficit. So I did not. However, my ballet school was run by a woman named Elvie DeMarco, who was out of Chicago, probably the Ruth Page School of of Chicago. She was well-trained and she ran a really good ballet school. And um, she took students that she felt had promised to New York in the summers. And when I was 15, she chose me to be one of those students. Uh, Heavily chaperoned, we lived in an apartment with her. We went everywhere with her and we trained at Ballet Rusty Monte Carlo School. Uh, I had 
phenomenal uh, education at that school, but we went to see theater then. So I was just slightly older than you when I saw my first Broadway show. How what was your first Broadway show in the other one? I saw three that summer and I was trying to put them in order in my head. I'm pretty sure I saw Bye Bye Birdie first and then I saw West Side Story and I saw Gypsy. So that was a great way to start out. Yeah, yeah. Pretty exciting. So when, at what point did you move to New York full-time rather than? Full-time, good question. Um, I went to New York. I did not want to go straight out of high school because honestly, I felt that I was too young emotionally. I was worried that, uh, honestly, that the city would just eat me up. I, I didn't think I would be able to handle it. Uh, you know, I was from a small town, um, really uh, didn't have that much experience in the city. So I thought, let's just chill here for a little while. And I worked for a veterinarian, continued my studies in my ballet school. Um, and uh, I went to New Orleans uh, to study with Lelia Holler for a while, who was Peter Gennaro's teacher. So I kept the dance going. But I also worked for this wonderful veterinarian who I am still friendly with. He was like a father figure to me. And he's turning 90 in, in January and we're still in, in contact, which is wonderful. Yeah. So I moved there when I was 20, not 18. Yeah. And I became a scholarship student to Valley Rusty Monte Carlo uh, under the tutelage of Madame Maria Swoboda. Uh, she was a... a ballerina, prima ballerina with a Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo in her heyday and had teachers like uh, Anatole Vilsack, Frederick Franklin, Leon Danielian. These are names that people who are older who are listening to your program will, it'll jog memories for them. Younger people will go, who? <laughs> who did she study with? But, you know, um, and that's where I was for until I started working on Broadway. So, at, when did you begin auditioning for Broadway? Uh, it was an interesting phenomenon because I was a, a, a scholarship student at Ballet Russe. Madame Swoboda did not allow us to take any kind of jazz classes or anything. She, that was anathema. Um, but I would sneak out at night and take uh, ballet classes, uh, take jazz classes at the June Taylor School. Uh, with a guy named Timmy Everett, who was amazing. And when M Madame Swoboda found out about it, she said, and this is her quote with her Russian accent, which I can't really do. She said, Carl, you are aborting the arts. And I didn't know what aborting meant. You know, I was 1920 and I, but I knew the way she said it, it was a really bad thing. And she banned me from class for 24 hours, which was very hard when you're a young dancer, that hurts. Um, so right after that, Ballet Russe, the management called the, the babies, we were called the scholarship uh, people were called the babies, Madame's babies. Uh, and they let us know that the company had gone defunct. Another word that I did not know what that meant at the time. And we all kind of looked at each other. It meant they were out of money. And as we were slated to go into the company, the existing company, there was no existing company. And it was providential that I had snuck out and taken those jazz classes 
because I was in a position to audition for Broadway. Whereas uh, some of those dancers were not, they were pure balletic and they had to look for other ballet companies. I started auditioning for Broadway. So was your interest lying in singing and acting as well as dancing or? Oh no. <laughs> when I was growing up, uh, we didn't have the arts academies like I teach in now where everything is under one roof. Um, what a blessing that is to just go and have all your training in one spot, you know. Um, I had only dance training in Pensacola. Um, singing came next because I was auditioning for, at the beginning, Summerstock, and then uh, I will get to auditioning for Bob Fosse, um, but I didn't know how to sing at all, N nothing, you know. But there was one song that all the dancers were learning because it had a range of about four notes. Oh. It was an easy song. It was called Hey Look Me Over from Wildcat, Lucille Ball musical. So all the dancers were learning that song. And eventually I got to where I could pound my foot on the floor and belt it out and get hired, <laughs> knowing that they, they knew I could carry a tune. I was okay. I was not a singer by any stretch. And it was still in the days, I've heard you uh, when you were talking with Eileen Casey, it was still in the days when dancers were separated from the singers. So we had different responsibilities in a show. Yeah. So what was your audition like for what I believe was your first Broadway show, How to Succeed in Business Without Relation? Yes, uh, that was one of the major shows in New York. Obviously, it was a big hit. It was running for a long time. And it was Bob Bossie. Uh, and I was probably 21, something like that. And I, uh, I, you know, I went and auditioned for the show. I made it to like 20 girls left or something out of 200. Uh, and then I got let go. And, um, and I went back again and, you know, I didn't get through the singing audition. That's when I learned, Hey, look me over, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and I got let go again. But that second time, I got down to two girls and I heard um, from the back of the house, Carolyn Kitch stepped forward. So I stepped forward. Uh, I'm thrilled. And there was a little tap on my left shoulder and a tall, beautiful woman who was a beautiful dancer leaned down and said in my left ear, I'll never forget it. And she said, I'm Carolyn Kitch. I went, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Oh, I apologize. I'm so sorry. So I stepped back. Carolyn Kitch went into the New York company. But that whole thing was so emotional for me because I had gotten so close. I picked up my ditty bag, we called them, my, you know, my dance bag. And I walked out into the wings and I started crying. And I looked like a raccoon because the mascara was all coming down my face and everything. And I would never have the guts, Charles, to do this now. But I walked back out on stage and I was crying and I said, please, Mr. Fossey, would you just tell me what I'm doing wrong? And he walked down the aisle <laughs> with a cigarette hanging down. And he, he put his foot up on the railing of, of the uh, orchestra pit. And he said, um, you're a beautiful dancer, but you can't sing. I said, well, what do I do? He said, go out and take some singing lessons. I said, Okay, thank you. And I ran out and I cried some more. Okay. Um, next audition, 
I went again. They had a call for girls. I went again. This time, when it came time for the singing auditions, he came down the aisle. He said, have you learned to sing yet? I said, I've been studying. He said, okay. I belted out, hey, look me over. And he walked. He was there. He was close by. He walked and he said, do you want to join the company in Chicago? I said, yes, I do. <laughs> so I went to Chicago to be in the first national company or the Chicago company of how to succeed in business. From there, they pulled me back to the New York company and I had my first Broadway credit. Long story, but that's the truth. <laughs> so did you get to work a lot or at all with Bob Fosse after the audition or being a replacement? Did you sort of Right. You've done your, you, you know a lot about this already, um, it, which is great that you've done your research on all of this. Um, when you're a replacement, you get one week of rehearsal, you go into the show. Um, the first time I think I had a real rehearsal period with Bob Fosse directing me was when I replaced in Sweet Charity. And I replaced a woman named Barbara Sharma. She had a small role, the role of Rosie. Um, and he was in the theater, putting me into the show, checking on the show, cleaning it up. So I had the benefit of being there with him, with Kathy Doby, who you probably know. Uh, you know, a lot of his, his regular dancers, Elaine Cancilla, who was a beautiful dancer. Um, so I had the benefit of being in the room. The next time I was in the room was when he hired me for... Uh, the first national company of Chicago. And that was a full tilt months rehearsal with Fosse, with Gwen, with Cheetah, which oh. was an amazing experience being around the three of them and having them mentor us, us and put us into the show. It was a beautiful experience. So it was that kind of a thing. So what other cast members were you working on in your first show and how to succeed working with? Working with um, in How to Succeed, Daryl Hickman was playing Jay Pierpont. Um, uh, God, who? Uh, Willard Waterman, an old character actor, way, way before your time, but a beautiful character. I was playing the Rudy Valley role. Um, Daryl Natara was in the, was I think the dance captain, Mer Merritt Thompson. These are all names that the people who were around in that day would know. They were the top notch dancers in the city at that time and they were working for Fosse. Yeah. So what would you say you sort of learned about performing from making your Broadway oh, debut? I'm sorry, one other thing when I was in Chicago doing How to Succeed, however, Diane Cannon was playing Rosemary and she was being courted at that time by Cary Grant. So it was not a big deal to come down after the show finished, after the bows and see Cary Grant standing there in the hallway with arms full of yellow roses. And uh, yeah, he was there a lot. So that's a nice little interesting touch. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask, what would you say you learned about performing from making your Broadway debut? Um, Uta Hagen, um, when I started studying with her, uh, said to me one time, 
because I was nervous about going out to the Goodman Theater to work with all these actors. I said to her, I'm just this little dancer. She said, always work with people who are better than you. That's how you learn. That's what I learned on how to succeed. I was working with the cream of the crop in Manhattan. Um, and I kept my eyes and ears open and I watched and I watched how they rehearsed, how they performed, how they treated one another. Uh, I always was a watcher. I always kept my antenna up for what I could learn. Uh, and that really stood me in good stead over a very long career. Yeah. So La Grosse Valleys was your next Broadway show, I believe. So since you were working with an entirely French cast and crew, was mm -hmm. that ever difficult to have? I assume they all spoke English, but. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a mixture because uh, it was primarily the French cast um, bringing over American dancers to Paris. So the, the sweet spot of La Grosse Valise was Tommy, a, a choreographer named Tommy Panko came to Luigi's class, you know, of course, Luigi and his work and Francis and everything. Um, and he, choreographers would just like lounge in the doorway and watch class and they would hire dancers. And they talked to Luigi, they'd be whispering back and forth and we would watch their eyes to see if their eyes were on us. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, wow. Um, and Tommy hired me to go to Paris to rehearse for eight weeks with a show called La Grosse Valise. Well, for free in Paris, I, yes, of course. So I was on a plane in three days to go. Um, and we had a grand time in, in Paris, but the dancers were all American. They were probably, eight of us or something, six of us. And the cast was, uh, was primarily the people from France. After that eight weeks, that was joyous. Half of us came back with mononucleosis. We were so tired. <laughs> we were up all night and dancing all day. And it, it was, it was a pretty exciting time. Paris for the first time. And, you know, in the sixties and I was what, 22 years old or something. It was, it was great. Um, we came back and closed in like a week, but it didn't matter. It, it was just, it was such a great experience, you know? Yeah. Uh, and there were a lot of things that went wrong with the show and, you know, but we didn't care. It was all right. Uh, I was going to ask you, is there a reason you think that it did better in France than it did here? Oh, I have no idea because I did not see it in France. Um, it was created by Robert Derry and Colette Brousset, who had originated La Plume de Matin, which has been, which had been an, an amazing success. And it could be that their audience knew that and they showed up for that. You know, they wanted to see this creative team working again. Um, it just didn't work in America, though. La Grosse Feliz didn't. Um, it, it was a cumbersome. Um, confusing show and it just didn't work and we ran a week or something but we had had all that time in Paris so yeah so the next show was replacing in Sweet Charity and you mentioned that Bob Fosse put you into that so yes. what was the experience like of having of time to rehearse with Bob Fosse 
he was very kind. You know, Fossey, you know enough now about uh, about Bobby that he, there was a transition in his life after the heart attack. And um, in Sweet Charity, he was still in a very kind um, demeanor. He would thank people for coming into audition. He would shake hands. He, he had a real interest in, uh, I think, being nice, uh, knowing that he was a major star uh, and, a, and a, a force in American musical theater. But he still had that kindness about him. So he was kind to me, um, directing me and Rosie. Um, he wasn't sharp or abrasive or, or as nervous feeling uh, as he felt me later on Chicago days, you know, after the heart attack. Um, so I, uh, he was just pleasant uh, to be around and very exciting to be doing his work. Yeah. I mean, Richman's uh, Frug is just, I, the choreography, it was, Charity was, I think, a groundbreaker. I mean, it was just, uh, there was a lot of innovation in the choreography. So I always enjoyed being around his genius, quite frankly. And Sweet Charity, of course, had Gwen. So to be around for a female uh, dancer coming up or trying to come up through the ranks, to be around Gwen Verdon was the, just the best place you could be. You know, Gwen and Cheetah are, had it all. I was just going to ask you actually what it was like to work with Gwen Verdon to share the stage with her. She had great humor. I mean, the talent, we know, you know, the talent. Oh, my God. But just to watch how she made choreography through her body. I would stand in the wings and watch when I wasn't on stage. I did that with every, every brilliant performer, leading lady that I worked with. Angela Lansbury, Hepburn, Cheetah. I would stand in the wings and watch them, you know? Um, another learning process for me. And Gwen was one of those people that you really did not want to take your eyes off of. You know, Charles, you feel like you're with these people a limited time in life. So yeah. why not take advantage of just watching them uh, <laughs> when you're there, you know? It, it was exciting. And she was very pleasant to work with, very gracious. Um, on Chicago, I got to do a run through with her. The woman playing Roxy had to be out, she was ill. And Gwen was watching rehearsal and she said, I'll do it with Carolyn. And I got to do a run through with Gwen Burton. <laughs> and my leotard strap had broken and I was, and she had a safety pin and Gwen Verdon came over and pinned the strap of my leotard and I kept that leotard for years it's probably still in a drawer upstairs because it meant so much to me that she did that yeah. amazing yeah wow that is amazing I want to ask you about Sweet Charity did you find that audiences were still just as enthusiastic even about a year into the run oh god yeah oh yes Gwen Verdon in a Bob Fosse show at the palace. What else is, what else do you need? Oh yes. Yes. Very enthusiastic. Yeah. 
So being that this was your first time having sort of a solo role as you just been a dancer and how to succeed, were you nervous about having to do the acting and singing by yourself? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I knew it was, I knew it was a really nice shot, you know, that I had a little speaking role. Actually, I was a little disappointed that I wasn't going to be a big spender girl because <laughs> it was such an iconic number. And I thought, oh, I want to be a big spender girl. But uh, to have my first uh, nice little role, uh, maybe 15 lines or something, but uh, a sweet role and uh, to be put into the show by Bobby and to and to have that, it, it was um, it was really a wonderful, wonderful experience. And. I remember a memory, um, God, uh, one of the ushers in the palace, uh, one of the usherettes came down, we rehearsed during the day and uh, she was there early or something. And she came down and she said, I know tonight you're going in because she was hip. She knew what was going on. And uh, she pressed a little lace <laughs> handkerchief into my um, hand and said, happy opening night. <laughs> I kept that handkerchief too. I've used it in, in other plays that I've done. I've held on to that little handkerchief, you know? These things mean something. Yeah. So your next show was Skyscraper, which you did. Yes. So what was it like to be able to work with Michael Kidd, who was one of the great choreographers? Yeah, I replaced in Skyscraper. Um, and interestingly enough, I was replacing um, a woman that Michael had been involved with and she was leaving him. She was British and she was returning to England. So um, Michael was not in a very good mood, but I was replacing. So the dance captain was putting me in um, and it was uh, Julie Harris's only musical. So there again, I was always, my path was always headed kind of into an acting path, which is now how it has ended up. Um, Watching Julie was amazing, but Michael wasn't around much. The dance captain put me in. So the show was really about being with Charles Nelson Riley and Julie Harris and these amazing talents. And uh, it, it, was kind, it was fascinating. Um, what's interesting now is that I'm kind of living the story. It's a woman who doesn't want to give up her brownstone in New York and they're tearing it, you know, they're building up all around her and they want it. And I'm living that up in Connecticut now. <laughs> because I have a little piece of land and they want to build all around me and they want my land. So I'm living skyscraper up here in Connecticut. <clears throat> but uh, I later worked for Michael in a full rehearsal time in one of the biggest bombs ever to hit uh, the, in Broadway history, which was Breakfast at Tiffany's. Um, so I had the full extent of the Michael Kidd experience and he was joyous. He was so much fun. So you were mentioning that it was Julie Harris and it was her first musical. So the only musical, only musical, only, yeah, only one. So was she concerned about it being her only musical or was she doing well or? Oh, she did great. She did great and audiences loved her. It had a substantial run. Charles Nelson Riley was out of his mind funny. They worked very well together. They cracked each other up on stage all the time, which made all of us crack up. Uh, yes, yeah, it, it was it was it was joyous. I had a lovely experience. She uh, settled up 
on the Cape and uh, there was a theater called the Monomoy up there. I don't know if it's still there, but they did a gala for Julie. The theater presented a gala for her on some one of her later birthdays prior to her death. Um, and they asked me if I would come up and sing a song from Skyscraper for Julie. And I was terrified, uh, but I did. I put on a little white dress or something. I went up there and I sang, uh, everybody has the right to be wrong in front of Julie Harris, which was her song. And at the party after she came over to me and she whispered, she had had the stroke then. So her speech was impaired, but she leaned over in my ear and she said, thank you for the song. <laughs> so I have that, you know, about Julie Harris. She was very gracious and fun. Yeah. So being a dancer, did you get to work with the songwriters a lot or not as much? Because I know it was Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen for Skyscraper. Not at that point. I didn't work with Sammy Kahn. And the dancers usually did not work with the lyricist and the composers. Um, the musical director would teach us the music. You were sitting in a chair and learning the music as you do in musicals. Um, and then we would sing whatever we were given on stage. But I later worked with Sammy Kahn in a very personal way in that there was a review called Words and Music. Uh, and they tapped me to choreograph it in London. It was going to be in London for eight weeks or something. So I went over to London and staged it really. It wasn't choreography. You know how you know how a musical review will sometimes have the composer and three singers. And that's what I was working with, three British singers and Sammy. Uh, and so it was, it was wonderful to hang out with Sammy. You know, after the show, we'd all go to the Swiss Center to eat because all the food in London was horrible. So we would go to the Swiss Center and have fondue every night. Uh, but he had great stories about Hollywood and, and the heyday, and he was a charming man. Yeah. So I want to ask you a more general question, which is, what is your opinion as a performer on out-of-town tryouts? Do you think, because I know it's a practice that's not as common today. Right. So what do you well, You know, the finances of theater seem to preclude that that sort of thing. I mean, it was an expensive um, project to load an entire company and sets and everything and open in another town. Um, having lived it, to me, it seems as if it was really valuable because you worked out a lot of kinks out of town. You also learned what was not going to work. And you also, a couple of times, learned that you were closing. Lolita, my love, we closed out of town, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it just never was going to happen in New York. So just close it down right there. But look at the history of musical theater. And you go back to the Oklahomas and everything. They were, you know, uh, uh, South Pacific was out of town. Um, you know, the great story is that uh, the producers didn't want to, uh, you've got to be carefully taught to be in the show. And Rodgers and Hammerstein said, we will close the show if you take that song out. Yeah. And of course, that's the whole denouement of the show. So, so town, I think it's valuable, but who can afford it now, you know? Yeah, so I definitely, I'm eager to ask about your next show, which is the legendary Breakfast at Tiffany's. So yeah. yes. how, how did you first get involved in this show? Probably auditioned. 
I can't, I, I didn't get called for it. I must have auditioned and gotten hired by Michael Kidd. Uh, he had a certain step that he did across uh, any of the old dancers will know what I'm talking about. It was a very kind of uh, hokey kind of walk that he would do across the stage. And you, you had the same audition with Michael a lot of the time. So um, I just got hired for it and then ended up with a little lead dance thing in it. Um, uh, it was uh, thrilling to work with Mary Tyler Moore, um, who was legendary even then, uh, Richard Chamberlain. Uh, and out of town, the show just went really wonky and we weren't really sure why. At one point, nobody knew what was wrong. Everybody knew a lot was wrong, but they called people in and they looked at the show and they were gonna doctor it. And, they, and what they did was they fired their hairdresser we just kept doing the same stuff. I mean, they were making mistakes like that, Charles. They weren't firing anybody else. They were firing a hairdresser. Uh, we knew we were in trouble. Yeah. But then when this wonderful little hairdresser had to go back to New York, you know, that didn't make any sense at all. Um, uh, that Breakfast at Tiffany's is the show where I got fired over the radio because Abe Burroughs had been directing it. The show was in terrible trouble. We came in, okay, we're uh, some theater, the, maybe the Imperial or somewhere, I forget. And I'm getting ready to go downtown to do the show on a matinee day. I'm brushing this long hair I had in those days. And on the radio, I hear that they've brought in Edward Albee to direct the show. And his first move has been to fire all the females in the show, except for Mary Tyler Moore and Sally Kellerman, who played her sidekick. And I'm listening to this and I said, I just got fired over the radio. And truly, we had been. We sat, we had to, they had to pay us for two weeks and we sat in the house and watched the show just dissolve. Uh, but we were fired over the radio. Kind of a unique experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so could, would you be able to, in retrospect, sort of think of or point to something that you thought was the big problem or? It, it, it felt as if from my perspective as certainly uh, an amateur director producer at that point, not knowing you know what they were doing behind the scenes, it felt to me from an audience perspective, it felt as if we always, always were trying to follow the film. You know, the film was, was uh, and remains an iconic film. Um, and Hepburn was uh, so delightful and delicious and beautiful in it. And Mary, I think, was having to buck that. Uh, and Chamberlain was having to buck that. And so take that and combine it with less than stellar choreography and uh, a lot of silliness around them. You know, the film doesn't have a lot of people in it. Yeah. It doesn't have, it's not a musical. It doesn't have all that dancing and singing and swirling around these two major characters. And I think that, I just think it was uh, pretty iffy from the beginning, you know, to try to follow that film. Yeah. So your next show, which was a big hit, was Hallelujah Baby, which you came into. So yeah. what was it like to work with Leslie Uggams, who was becoming a star at that time? 
yeah, it was, um, you know, I, I was going back and like making some notes today to talk to you. I said, I need to know these years and what was, you know, kind of get ready for Charles here. You know? And it, I read, it won the Tony that year for best musical. And I went, and best score. I went, wow, that's really, that's a show that should be done more often. It's certainly relevant to contemporary times. You know, it dealt with racism and it dealt with, uh, it was a brave show to be done at that, at that point. And Leslie was, she lit up on stage. The face just lit up on stage, uh, a true star. And it's what really catapulted her into stardom, even more than the Skitch Henderson show or things that she had done on TV. Hallelujah Baby did it for her. That was her her breakthrough role. Um, I I wish I had been smarter in those days or more uh, more aware of what was going on uh, socially, uh, socially and politically in the world uh, to really appreciate that show. I mean, there we were the whites, there were the blacks in the show. There was that dialogue back and forth. It was dealing with racism and this this young woman who wanted to get out. Uh, it was an important show. Yeah. I, I'd like to revisit that now and maybe direct it somewhere um, contemporaneously. Oh, that, yeah. So I, I was going to ask you, um, the show Kwamina had received a lot of backlash years before for having a black leading woman and a white leading man. Sorry, the reverse, a white leading woman and a black leading man. But you, I was going to ask, did, your, did you ever experience the same kind of? We, from the audience standpoint, I didn't feel, you know, I, I was in the chorus, so I didn't feel that kind of resistance from an audience standpoint. Within the company, however, there, the factions developed that, uh, and it was said overtly, so I'm not making this up. It was said overtly that the blacks should really not be socializing with the whites, which I was raised in the segregated South. I fled the segregated South because I knew at the age of 15, something was wrong with this. I didn't know what, but I knew something was wrong. Uh, I didn't like it. And that was the first time in theater, which is a pretty liberal environment, or I felt it was, um, it was the first time that I had been confronted with that feeling of what you, you cannot socialize with these people. And I was like, why? And I'm, I'm sure some of, some of the black people were going, well, why? But there were some of the older uh, people in the company that said, no, separate. And that was strange because that was backstage. Yeah. So what was it like to work with Kevin Carlisle, who was the choreographer on that? And what sort of style of dance was the choreography? I only, uh, I only saw him when he would come in for cleanup rehearsals because I had replaced. Um, he, I remember him as being uh, a kind of a quiet man, uh, gentle. Uh, the choreography on the show reflected uh, a style of the 60s, 70s, kind of a rock feel to it, uh, which 
uh, Kevin did very well. I think he had a lot of television credits under his belt at that time, if I'm not mistaken, but I didn't really get to know him well or his style. You know, you, you'd go into a different, uh, you go into a show with a different choreographer and you would just adapt to that style. It was like, whether you had studied or not, boom, you would go there because Broadway dancers need great flexibility. Yeah. So your next show was Promises, Promises. So mm -hmm. what is the experience like of coming into a really long running show? I replaced in Promises, Promises three times. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a wonderful stage manager, very tall African-American man named Charlie Blackwell. The old timers will know that name. Uh, and he was as hip as the day is long. He knew every Broadway dancer. He knew who to call for what and when. And uh, I replaced in the show. Then I left the show to go do something else. I forget what. Um, uh, maybe something. Oh, I remember one show. It must have been something that closed out of town uh, because Charlie was on the phone and he said, Carolyn, you got terrible reviews up there. You're going to be closing. You want to come back to Promises. Your shoes are still in the basement, he said. <laughs> and I said, yes, Charlie, thank you. So I went back in. And then at a later time, I, I left to do something else. And then at a later time, I went back in. So I was in Promises three times. That was the first time I was around Michael Bennett's choreography. Even though I had worked with Michael and Donna, on a show called Hullabaloo, the television show in oh. the 60s. They were babies. I was a baby. I have a picture of us, you know, of the dancers. Um, I, re I, I just subbed for a couple of weeks on that. But that's when I first met Michael Bennett and Donna McEchnie. They were young. I was young. The first time I did his choreography, though, was on Promises. And I went... I'm in love with this guy's style. This style, this, this style rocks me out. I want to live with this style, right? And I did, <laughs> for a good part of my career, I did live with Michael Bennett's style as well as Bob Fosse's. Uh, so I was a lucky, lucky duck. Yeah. So who were, I know you were just talking about Michael Bennett. Who were some of your other favorite choreographers work to dance? Well, certainly Bob Fosse. Um, I liked working with Michael Kidd. Uh, there were like short things, you know, like there was the Millican Industrial. I don't know if you've heard of that, right? Yeah. But like Peter Gennaro would do that. So it was like a, a four-week rehearsal and you performed for two weeks. Um, so I was around Peter briefly, but boy, what a joyous man he was. Um, I liked working with Peter. I, I really, most of the time, was with Bennett or Fosse, you know? Yeah, yeah. That seems to be where uh, I lived, where my niche happened for me, was with the two of them. So having gone in and out of Promises, Promises three times, how did you find that the show was different each time you came back, in terms of the cast or how it... Well, because it was uh, there again, it was kind of a, a star vehicle with the leads. Um, whoever was playing uh, Cece Baxter, the male lead, uh, really 
changed kind of the the timbre of the show in a bit, you know, it was Jerry Orbach, first time I met Jerry Orbach and then went on to do Chicago with him. But Promises, the first time I worked with Jerry, who was just a hoot and a half, he had a running poker game off stage with a stage hand. So every time he walked off stage, he'd, they left the cards in the same place every night and they'd pick it up the next night. I mean, he was a character, he was a great character. And, um, and then Tony Roberts did it and the show shifted because Tony's quality was very different from Jerry's and that was fun to watch, you know? So I think the leads uh, many times will give the show a, a feeling or, or an ambiance uh, different from who had previously played it, you know? They're, mm -hmm. not, they're, not, they're not cardboard characters up there. And that was fun. Yeah. So your next show was Dear World. So yeah. what was it like to work with the creative team of MAME, who was Jerry Herman and Joe Layton? And that was amazing. A Dear World was one of those um, interesting shows that uh, is complicated based on the Mad Woman of Shio and people are trying to adapt that uh, material. Um, Jerry Herman, I can't say enough uh, wonderful things about Jerry Herman. Uh, I, I miss him. I miss him and I wasn't around him later in life, but I, I miss him. I am uh, so happy we still have such a legacy of work, such a body of work from Jerry Herman. Uh, and he was in rehearsal every day. Uh, truly one of the sweetest men in the world. Uh, you never had to worry that Jerry was going to say a harsh word to you or to anybody around him, really. Um, Joe Layton, on the other hand, was kind of brittle. And, you know, he was kind of uh, moving around fast and uh, he was a whole nother dynamic. Uh, but blessedly, there was Angela Lansbury, another uh, brilliant talent that I stood in the wings and watched. And she was wonderful in that show. Uh, Milo O'Shea was in it, Jane Cannell, uh, really top-notch character uh, people in the show. Uh, but it was watching Angela. She had a song, I've told this story before, Charles, she had a song where she did not move her, her right hand, it was behind her back, and I would stand in the wings on stage right and look at her, watch her from the side. She gestured with her left hand, if music is no longer lovely, bah, 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 and it bills like crazy. The hand behind her back was working like this. You can see my hand, other people can't see it, but her fingers were kneading. All that energy was in that hand, but she wasn't doing it out here. Yeah. She saved the, the, the really specific gestures for the front, but that energy was working in that hand behind her back. It was so exciting to watch how she did that. Um, so uh, what an experience to have that every night, huh? Yeah. So what was the reaction on the part of the cast and creative team when it did not do as well as MAME had done a few years before? You know, I think that we all lived in a world where that probably was not as important to us as it may have been to Angela. Yeah. Because it was on her shoulders. Uh, she was she was the rock that both of those shows were pinned on uh, or sitting on. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we had a job, we were happy, we were working in the Lunt Fontaine with Angela Lansbury, what could be bad? Um, she may have felt it more, but she certainly didn't show it. Um, she's had such an illustrious career and she's gone from show to show to show with varying ups and downs with them involved, I'm sure, but um, you would never know that she was bothered by that. She, get, she gives it her all when she's working. She gives it her all every single night. So what show that you have worked on has sort of changed the most during rehearsals? Oh, A Chorus Line. <laughs> oh. Because we had a six month or many months workshop. Uh, so that was constant changing. Uh, but uh, other than that workshop uh, uh, scenario, what changed? The things that were out of town uh, the things that they were trying to make work, like the Tiffany's or the Lolita's or, you know, uh, trying to make this thing work and you would get new things, new numbers to be put in that night on a daily basis. Actually, um, Coco had a lot of changes because we did a long time of previews in New York and they changed a lot along the way and they held off opening because I think they were afraid that Kate would get clobbered for her singing or something, whatever. I don't know. I'm not privy to that. I wasn't privy to that, but we did a long time of previews. Uh, we also previewed a long time on Dear World, but I don't remember that many changes on Dear World, actually. Yeah. So that leads me into asking you about Coco. What, what were some of the changes that were made? Oh, God. Um, I think it had more to do with the scenes. It had more to do, I think, with the libretto yeah. than with the actual score. There were songs that went in and out, uh, not for Kate particularly, but for uh, secondary characters or chorus. Um, I don't remember Michael changing a lot of choreography. It's a shame that um, you can't see what Michael did on that show. It was some of, I think, his, his most brilliant work in the staging of that and the Cecil Beaton costumes. I mean, it was a beautiful show to look at. Um, and I, th I think it was more in the, in the book that the changes were made. And that didn't really affect us that much. That's where I, I met our dear Anne Rankin, who we just lost. Mm -hmm. um, that's the first time Annie and I were in the chorus. It was a chorus of 24 uh, women. So that was my first time I worked with Annie. So, which is, we miss her. we will miss her. She was brilliant on Broadway. Yeah, she was. So the, uh, the next question I want to ask you about Coco, which I'm sure everyone will want to know, is what was it like to work with Katherine Hepburn? Um, it was honest. I'll tell you that. Um, you didn't like walk into the theater and say, oh, Miss Hepburn, how do I look today? She would tell you. <laughs> it wasn't always what you wanted to hear. <laughs> you know? I mean, it was a, it was a, um, she really taught I think a lot of us, myself included, I'll speak for myself. She really taught me about authenticity and just being honest. Um, 
she was powerful to watch. She was powerful to listen to. She was powerful within her silences. You know, um, she she brought that uh, authenticity is the word I keep going back to for her. She brought that to the work. She brought it to her offstage behavior. Um, truly one of the most amazing experiences in the world is to spend a year in the company of a Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. Uh, great stories uh, that I won't get into with now, but just great offstage stories about the character that she was and remains in my memory, uh, riding home in the trunk of the car one time when uh, she had guests at the theater and she didn't have room in her limousine. So she just got in the trunk, you know, and waved goodbye to everybody and went off to Turtle Bay. I mean, you know, um, there were a lot of mishaps on the show. And at one point she crawled under the curtain and told the audience to sit tight. We're going to straighten this out. And, you know, we'll be back in a minute with the curtain pull. And then she went back and we started again, that kind of thing. She was uh, fascinating to watch. And be. So what did you, how did she sort of interact with the other members of the creative team? Her being the big movie star that she was. She, um, they, uh, Somebody said along the way uh, about the creative team, uh, and it might have been Michael Bennett, uh, so-and-so is high on this, and so-and-so is high on that, and so-and-so is high on that, and Kate is just high on life. And it, and it was meant like, we can't do that, you know, we need to go and have a drink, you know, but Kate is high on life, because uh, she was really high on life. Um, she would spat with uh, the director who I want to say was Michael Benthold. Do you have yes. it in front of you, Michael Benthold? Mm -hmm. She, and she chose him, she wanted him, but she would spar with him, sometimes in front of us sitting around. Uh, sometimes she would walk off, not much. She wasn't, yeah, she wasn't a diva diva, but she, if she didn't like it, she would walk off and let everything cool down. <clears throat> um, I think she drove Michael Bennett to distraction many times because she couldn't move. You know, she really was not a dancer and he wanted her to dance and to waltz and to carry. And, you know, she wasn't going to do that. So I think she drove him to distraction a bit. But as I say, he still came up with some of his most beautiful work. Yeah. So what was the experience like both with this show and with any other shows that you've done it in of performing on the Tonys? Oh, I'm trying to think. I did a couple of things on the Tonys. Uh, of, oh, the opening of A Chorus Line and Coco. Okay. Um, performing on the Tonys is just the... Uh, apex of performing because you're performing for an audience basically like the actors fund benefits of your peers I mean there are a lot of people in the theater out there so that makes it loaded and exciting right there so in both instances it was uh very exciting to be on a state we had the the revolve and it was done in our theater so that they, they used the set and we had the revolve there is a, a video of that um that is uh well worth watching to see Michael staging on it. Uh, but to be up there with Katherine Hepburn, I mean, yeah, 
uh, I'll take that. <laughs> and then um, when a chorus line uh, performed on the Tonys and we turned away from the mirror and looked at all those people out there on the Tonys, that was one of the most exciting theatrical experiences I've ever had. So you went out on tour with Company, the first national tour of Company. So yes. did you enjoy the experience of sort of seeing the country and seeing? Absolutely. Um, for young performers, uh, you know, I say, oh, when theater comes back, and it will, we don't know when, but it will, um, don't knock going out with a, a, a first-class tour because for free, you get to see all these wonderful cities. Uh, it was a real education. <clears throat> and um, I would never have had access to that kind of travel in my life, uh, both uh, in the country and in Europe, if I had not gone into theater. You know, I mean, you, theater got me to Europe a few times. Uh, theater got me into almost every state in the country. Um, and uh, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's an education. You go to all the museums in that town. You go, you know, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. So when you were going out on tour with company, what was it like to work with Hal Prince, the legendary Hal Prince? Hal Prince, I, you know, I didn't have that much interaction with Hal, but I remembered about him I, something I did not like in that he would snap his fingers for people when he wanted something. You know, the people around him, his assistants and everything were kind of used to it, I guess. I didn't like that. I thought, what is that all about? You can say hello, come here or something, you know. Um, so I didn't have that much to do with Hal. Uh, I do remember on company... Uh, an amazing moment with Stephen Sondheim. Um, he came into LA. I had replaced Donna in L I was signed to re replace Donna after six weeks or eight weeks in LA because she was leaving to do something else. And Michael wanted uh, me to understudy her and replace her. So uh, I was now in the show with a lot of the originals from New York. It was basically the original company and two or three of us that were new for the first mm -hmm. national. And um, at the end of the show, we all knew Sondheim was in the house. And, you know, I was like, oh, God. Um, and, you know, after he was going to give a few brief notes on stage. So we would stay on stage after the bows. Everybody's sweaty and standing there. And he made an effort because I think he knew I was in a difficult position having replaced Donna, who was, we all know, McKechnie, <laughs> you know, you replace McKechnie. It's like, oh, my God, there's a lot of pressure there. Um, and I think he knew I was in a difficult position and he made an effort of walking over to me before he began the notes and taking my hand and he said, you were wonderful. And he walked away and my life was changed after that with that company because he had given me his endorsement. And later on, then Michael, when he saw me do it, gave me that endorsement. Um, but I will never forget how kind a gesture that was on Stephen Sondheim's part. I know you asked about Hal Prince, but I have nothing to say about him, really, except the finger snapping. <laughs> and I also want to ask you about Elaine Stritch, who also... Oh, God. Charles, we need to get together for four hours, and I'll talk to you about Elaine Stritch. Oh, my God. Um, 
to spend a year on the road with Elaine Stritch, I always say that underneath that brashness and that voice and the gruffness and that, there lived a really nice, sweet little Catholic girl. Um, if she liked you, I'm telling, and she liked me, I'll, she was generous to a fault. Um, she, I got ill in New Haven with flu, bronchitis or something. And like now with the pandemic, the, the ER, the full hospital in, in New Haven, which I know now was Yale, because um, I lived near it, um, was full up and they couldn't take me. Elaine put me in the suite that she had at the hotel and paid for the doctor to come to the hotel twice a day to check on me. Oh. She moved into a little room. That was Elaine Stritch. She was that kind. Yeah, you know, I tried over the Elaine, I need to pay you back. And she, her line was, she said, baby, don't worry about it. It's my Christmas gift to the world. That's how generous she was when she liked you. Yeah. Um, so I really adored her. I, I, another woman that I love to watch from the wings. You know, what she did in that scene, in the Joanne scene and company was a master class on a half a bottle of brandy every night. Half a bottle of brandy. <laughs> but boy, she was brilliant. So your next show was Lolita, My Love, which closed out of town. So yeah. what was it like to, again, work with Alan J. Lerner on this in Cocoa and again? Alan, um, Alan was nervous as he had uh, a real reason to be. Uh, his career was changing. It was fading actually yeah. after this mega career. Uh, it seemed his time was running out and his style of music was running out. He was not keeping up kind of. So he was very nervous. Uh, I remember he was tearing at his fingers a lot. They would bleed and he would wear those little finger cots you know, because he had this nervous habit. Um, there were a lot of changes on that, not for the better. Um, it was a property that was destined for disaster. Uh, the pedophilia aspect of it, um, the reviews said you hired a girl who looks uh, 17 and of course the, this older man would go for her. So they fired her and they got a girl Denise Nickerson, who I just read about recently, um, uh, they hired her. She looked like a child and it got really creepy. You didn't want to see this man in his sixties going after this little girl, you know? Um, it was destined for disaster. And, and that was the experience on that. Um, Danny Daniels left or got fired as a choreographer and a man named Dan Serretta. Have you met Dan Serretta? Uh, he took over and John Menio and myself assisted Danny. Uh, but it was it was never meant to crawl out from um, to crawl out from the gutter, really. It, it just couldn't happen. Yeah. So um, so you were it did not come as a surprise that it didn't make it to New York. No surprise and a great relief because, oh. quite frankly, we did not want to come. <laughs> We really didn't. We were all like looking for other work everywhere because we did not want to come in with it. Uh-uh. No. I, I would also be curious to know for the historical record what some of the changes were that were made during 
Oh my God. I can't even begin to tell you. I mean, that was something that scenes were going in. Dorothy Loudon's songs were changing. Um, Leonard Fry's songs were changing. Uh, uh, choreography was changing at, in working out in the lobby of where were we Philadelphia Boston somewhere uh, working in the lobby somewhere new numbers were being choreographed and put in that night almost every day so the changes were uh, the changes were a book unto themselves let me put it that way yeah uh, it was very confusing. Half the time, we didn't know if we were supposed to be on stage right or stage left at any given point. It was it was that kind of chaos. So I want to ask about your next Broadway show, which was the only play you did on Broadway, which was Ulysses in Nighttown. So oh, yeah. did you always want to do a play? Did you always want to do just acting? I had studied with uh, with Uta Hagen. You had to audition for her class in those days. And I studied with her for a few years. I was with her for a few years. She was a great mentor to me as she was with many students. I learned so much from her. And yes, I was definitely moving into that acting realm. I loved developing a character. I loved playing within somebody else's life, skin, thoughts, brain. Um, I still do. Uh, I'm pushing 80 now and I'm still acting. I love it. Um, so I, I had worked with Zero Mostel on uh, a, a smaller production of Forum that we did out at Westbury. He liked me. He pulled me in to come to Ulysses in Nighttown uh, because he wanted me to understudy Julie Newmar. And Julie, for whatever reason, got kind of... Mm, weird and they let her go and they moved me up to the role I was very much in over my head um but for whatever reason I got through it and played the entire run uh you know opposite Zero and Fanula Flanagan and Tommy Lee Jones uh <laughs> lucky happy uh but it it was a struggle at the beginning but the Clancy brothers were doing the music and I was with this stellar company of Irish actors and uh, it was a beautiful experience, ultimately. Yeah. So the museum of the city of New York has some pictures of it that I just found. Oh. And I want to get some copies, but they're expensive. <laughs> so, but I, there are some pictures of it, so. So I want to ask you how the sort of rehearsal process for a play was different then? For a musical, which is fun. Well, Ulysses had its own particularities to it in that it involved uh, versions of nudity. So now, you know, now you're into a whole nother ball game. How do you work with nudity on stage or semi nudity on stage? Um, and Fanula Flanagan was uh, one of the um, well known actors of, and still is, of the Abbey Theatre in Dublin. She was uh, just here a couple of seasons ago, and I can't call the name of the play now, but I the, saw the Ferryman. The Ferryman. Yeah, the Ferryman. Right, right. Really good, gorgeous direction. Um, and she led uh, the women in the show that were going to deal with uh, various forms of of nudity. Um, she led us into it, uh, so that was uh, that was a layer that I had not expected at the beginning. You know, it was like, whoa, I'm an actress. What am I doing? Like shedding this or that or whatever. But 
uh, it worked, you know, it was needed for the piece. Uh, and everybody in the company was very professional about it. Uh, it was character driven. Uh, these are prostitutes in the Nighttown uh, section of Dublin in the red light district, if you will. Uh, and yes, they would not be fully clothed, you know. Yeah. So, um, it was a real learning experience in, in many, many different directions. Uh, Burgess Meredith was banned from the theater on that because he was drinking oh. too much. And John Dexter came in. So I got to work with John Dexter for a, a short amount of time, which was a, a wonderful experience as an actor. And I want to ask you what it was like to work with Zero Mostel. With Zero? Yeah, yeah. Um, I loved it. I loved it. Um, he had the reputation of being difficult. I understand it. I saw some of it. It was never directed di directly at me, but I did see it. But Zero, there again, on stage, was very exciting, uh, gave you what you needed at that point, waited for the setup uh, from, from you. Uh, I found him very giving that way. He, he was a consummate actor. Um, and the perk for me in so many ways was he, he and his wife on the weekends when we would go back into New York, he had a limousine to drive from Westbury, Long Island when we were doing Forum, this is. And uh, he would choose a couple of people to ride in the car in the limousine just so he could schmooze and laugh and talk and everything. A lot of the times he talked about the McCarthy hearings and the blacklisting and the anger that he still had and the, the absolute raving uh, dislike he had for Jerome Robbins, say, because Jerome Robbins had yeah. given names. Uh, Zero still smarted from those days when he was blacklisted. So my feeling is that maybe some of that anger came out because of what had been taken away from him so unfairly. Mm -hmm. um, I loved working with him. I had no problems with him whatsoever. Yeah. So the next show you were part of was A Chorus Line. So yep. the first question I want to ask you is, were you involved in the famous tape sessions or... Not in the tape sessions, no. That had happened, and they were already in workshop when I ran into Pam Blair over on 3rd Avenue. I don't know what I was doing on the east side. I rarely went over there. Um, uh, and Pam Blair originated Val, the dance 10 looks for, otherwise known as, you know, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> otherwise known by its vernacular title. Um, I ran into Pam and she said, Carolyn, Michael's looking for you. I said, what for? And she said, he's working on this little thing. You know, I don't know. Maybe you want to check it out. Give him a call. I said, okay. I said, Michael, what's up? And uh, basically he said, I want you to come in and stand by for Donna uh, on this thing. Cause I had done company and replaced her. I said, okay. Everybody was working for a hundred dollars a week. That was nothing in those days. I mean, I was like, what? Um, and I got involved in the workshop as it had already started uh, and uh, for a few months. And then we opened at the, at the Newman, at the public. So how did the show sort of continue to be shaped during rehearsal? Uh, during it, the again, it, 
that's where the most changes. But those changes, the changes on a chorus line were every day incrementally, you could see the improvement. They were not going the way of a Lolita or a Tiffany's, they were, which was getting more and more destructive. Every day you saw what was getting pared away that was not right, what was being added that was right. That was exciting. That was like, wow. Um, I remember saying to somebody though, at some point, who's gonna come down here and see this little show about dancers? Well, you know, the universality of how the piece ended up. Everybody that saw that show could relate to having your, yourself standing on that line, trying to get a job yeah. and being let go or getting it. Everybody could relate to it, plumbers, CPAs, business people, I, you know, it had a universality that I did not anticipate it having, but the changes were fast and furious and they had Michael's eye on them, Bob Avian, Bayork Lees, Marvin, Ed Kleban. They knew the right way to go. It was a great production team. So at what point in the process did you know or did you realize that it was going to be the smash that it was and is? I think we had been running for a week or two or three, something like that at the public in the Newman Theater. And limousines were driving up. Diana Ross was sitting on the stairs. Gene Kelly was there. Uh, I think that's when it started dawning on us that this is a happening now that we had not anticipated. Yeah. Um, it was stunning, Charles, the people that showed up down at the Newman. And I was too shy and too stupid, quite frankly, to keep an autograph book. I thought I would look like a little hick getting you know, autographs. I'm not gonna do that. I wish I had that autograph today because so many luminaries were in that audience begging to sit on the stairs to see it. That's when we knew. That's when we got it. Yeah. So you were mentioning that you understudied Donna McKechnie. So did you get to go on as Cassie ever or a lot? Yes. yes. Michael called me into, uh, he phrased it as standing by for, for Donna. Um, a standby usually is not in the show, but they go on in case of. An understudy is in the show, goes on in case of. Um, but then he wanted me in the show, so I became her understudy. Uh, but I was there essentially to understudy Donna. Then he added another understudy for me as he started shaping the show. Everybody had two or three covers, right? Yeah. So then I ended up uh, covering for Sheila as well. So I covered those two roles. I only went on twice for Sheila, once down at the Newman, once up at the Schubert. Um, I went on for uh, Cassie quite a bit. Oh. Uh, it was a very demanding role. Um, Donna was strong, strong, strong. She still is, you know, but she was having some back problems. And at one point um, she was out for, I forget, a, a period of time though. I got to play the role for a while. Um, and I saw, I could feel how demanding it was. And uh, actually one day, the woman playing Sheila also called out sick. Uh, so uh, it was written up in Earl Wilson, who was a columnist in those days, uh, that we had had to adjust the show so that 
I played elements of Cassie and elements of Sheila at the same performance, the matinee, wow. which was interesting. Cassie sang at the ballet. Um, we gave all the snarky lines of Sheila to uh, the characters, a couple of the guys who had snarkier characters. I mean, we got through it. Let me put it that way. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> but it didn't make the paper. <laughs> so what was it like to sort of observe Michael Bennett and Marvin Hamlish doing their work and working with them? Michael, I felt... Michael, I felt very close to because of going back to Hullabaloo days, you know, uh, that TV show, and having done at that point three companies for Michael, I think three companies. Um, I just felt really comfortable with Michael. And Michael was kind of a, a snuggler, you know, he would come over and put his arm around your waist and talk. And, you know, he, he was, I was very, very comfortable uh, with Michael all along the way. Um, Marvin, I didn't know as well, you know, um, he did invite me to go to, I think it was the Grammys. Um, so I got dressed up and went to the Grammys with Marvin and that was the year he won like three Grammys. So they had the camera on my face a lot with this mystery. I became a mystery woman in Marvin Hamlish's life for about 20 minutes. You know, I mean, I knew him as a fun guy that worked hard and was extremely talented. So um, there again, you know, being around these amazingly talented people was uh, a way to learn and, and to enjoy. Yeah. So the last question about a car song I want to ask you, because I assume that you did it, was what was it like to gather back to do the big performance of one when a chorus line became the longest running show ever? Yeah, it's interesting. During the run of the show, I kind of felt invisible. You know, the, the, the understudies were kind of in the basement. We were invisible. We weren't in the lineup. I always felt like nobody even knows I'm here kind of thing. With these events that have happened with the longevity of the show and the importance of the show, I have felt much more a part of that original company. I have made friendships with people that I didn't get to know. Uh, when the show was running in New York and I was with it. Uh, they were upstairs, I was in the basement, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I feel when we when we do these big events, I feel much more like the show. I have a little part of the show, whereas I didn't really feel like that when we were running. Um, it's interesting how uh, you're not there yet, Charles. When you age, things shift. You know, all, all the little um, nudgy ugh, stuff that makes you jealous and angry and, ugh, and you want to pick fights with people and all that stuff that goes on sometimes backstage. When you get together 40 years later, that's kind of like not there. Yeah. You're, you were part of something big together. And I really enjoy that. I love it when they, I call it trotting us out. You know, they trot us out. We're still alive. Hey, this is great. I love, I love when they trot us out. And I get to see the people from California who were in the show. Ron Dennis is, has become a good friend. Um, Kay Cole and I talk now. Uh, whereas we never talked when we were performing it originally. Yeah. It's a sweet, sweet thing that happens. 
something to look forward to for you. <laughs> so I want to ask you about something that you've mentioned a few times before, which is going out on tour with Chicago as Velma. Yeah. So what was the experience like of doing not just a role, but a huge role, the, the star of the show on tour to do, to have to be going yeah. It was kind of a, a rush event for me to go into rehearsal because a woman named Lenora Nemitz, who had understudied Cheetah in New York, and there again, a really strong, really good talent, um, still is, I understand, uh, is teaching, I think, or working in Phil the Philadelphia area or somewhere in Pennsylvania. But I had a great deal of respect for her. Um, she developed, uh, I think it was nodes. I heard it was nodes on her vocal cord, was unable to take the tour. And I got a very quick call from my agent, said, uh, Fosse wants to see you at 4.30 today. I went, okay. So I went in, I sang, I read, okay. And my agent called me that night and said, you go into rehearsal next morning, in the morning. So I had about three weeks or four weeks. The company was already in rehearsal. And Fosse, I have to tell you, um, as much as I had been around Fosse and I, I really was, uh, I liked him a lot, whatever pressures he was under, whatever pressures I was under to try to pull up this huge role, um, he made me crazy. He made me uh, nervous. He scared me. Um, it was like a whole nother Fosse that, from what I was used to. And I did not relate well to it, um, but I got through it. I cried a lot. I thought I'll never be able to do this. Uh, and opening night in Boston was just uh, a scary, scary time. In retrospect, however, I'm wondering, and I have wondered many times, if indeed he treated me badly. He treated me badly in front of the company. He made me the underdog that Velma is. And as a result, I came out with really good reviews. As, as the company did, as the Roxy did, as I did. And he came over to me at the opening night party and he wanted to dance with me. And I said, no, I'm, I'm really not ready for that. You know, cause I had been through this kind of traumatic experience with him, but he tried to make nice and, and I'm appreciative of that. But I just wonder if that's what he was trying to do was really make me into Velma because he did. Uh, as a result, I had a, a very good tour. I loved the role. I was much more suited to uh, Velma than I was to Cassie. My qualities really hit Velma uh, on, the, on the head more than my qualities hit Cassie. Um, so I was thrilled to have the opportunity and he gave me that. So what was it like to work with Penny Worth who was your Roxy and Jerry Orbach? Yeah, um, two uh, consummate professionals. Uh, Penny and I uh, have uh, maintained a relationship for over 40 years. We haven't seen much of each other lately, but, uh, you know, we worked well together. Uh, we didn't see much of each other off stage. We went our separate ways after the show. Uh, but uh, Jerry was a rock on stage. What a pillar of strength he is on stage. So just to look in his face and say a line is like, yeah, I know where I am here. He's given me what I need, you know. So um, it was, uh, I was deliriously happy to be working uh, in that show and, and with a great company, with a really strong company.
So your next show was a Cole Porter sort of review or a jukebox musical, Happy New Year. So I was pulled in to stand by for the two female leads. Um, So that was my job. I was off stage. I wasn't in the show. My job was to learn these two female roles. Um, uh, Leslie Denniston, I think, and I forget the other woman. But uh, that's what I did. And then it closed like immediately. (laughs) So I took my script and I went home and I looked for another job. So I also want to ask you about the Peter Pan tour, which you did. You understudied Sandy Duncan on the Peter Pan tour. So what was your relationship like with her, given that you were? Um, I had known Sandy uh, in an acquaintance kind of way from a place called the Rehearsal Club. Uh, you Have you ever heard of that? Or I don't know. It, there were a couple of brownstones on West 53rd Street where young women who were going into the arts could live there for, I think I paid $26 a week for my room and for breakfast and dinner. And lunch was on us. And uh, you needed references to get in there. I mean, there were no men allowed the, above the first floor. I mean, it was heavily chaperoned. Uh, and I lived there for three years. Sandy also lived there. So we kind of knew each other from way back when. Sandy had done Peter Pan in New York, was going to take it on the road. Um, She wanted an understudy. Uh, I've been in that situation where you're playing a lead. You want an understudy that you feel is not going to be looking to trip you all the time and to go on. You want an understudy that's supportive, reliable, but is not looking to get on and push you out of the way. And Sandy and I had that kind of a relationship. And Donna and I had that kind of a relationship. Um, Sandy and I had that relationship before I went in on Peter Pan. So we got along very well. She's easy to work with. Um, I loved watching her in in that role. Um, I used to follow her husband, Don Correa, down a long hallway, mimicking his walk. So I would have a little boy walk for Peter. (laughs) Um, and it was one of those tours that's magical and that the lost boys were there with grandparents, with tutors, with uh, a parent, uh, but it became a very family-oriented show, and that came from Sandy. She wanted it to be a family-oriented show, so we would do great activities on days off, like half of the company would go with the kids, and it, uh, I said when the tour was over, once you're in Never Never Land, you never ever leave. And that's true. There's still an element in my life of that tour and of being really in Never Never Land. That's how that was. How much did you rehearse as Peter Pan? Because I know there was even technically with the flying and everything like that. Flying and um, you're asking about the flying? Yeah, and how much you got. I was getting a ding. I'm sorry, I got distracted. Um, I was termed the test pilot because as the understudy, standby I was, as the standby, I needed practice flying. And Sandy had all the practice she needed. She was doing it eight times a week. So when we got to a new town, it was my job to go up and test the rigging. They did all the flying with me. Uh, it gave me the experience of being in the harness, 
knowing what it was like to be singing up in the air, you know, um, and it was my rehearsal for the flying. Uh, I loved it. I, and I always thought, you know, you're on a little like a piano wire and you're how many feet, 30 feet up in the air. I always thought, oh, can I do this? Well, yes, it's an exhilarating feeling to be up there free. Your, your body's totally free and way up in the air. It was exhilarating. So did you get to go on for Peter Pan a lot or at all? Not at all. Not at all. I got suited up. They had me suit up for one week. I forget where we were, but I had to be in the wings in case they wanted to ring the curtain and Sandy's back was very bad because the harness is very bad on your back. Um, her, she was having a lot of pain and a lot of problems with the back. So they wanted me suited up and in the wings in case they rang in the curtain, they'd make the announcement and they'd send me right back out in the next scene. That was the plan. Um, so we did that for a week. I was on tender hooks, you know, cause it was like, oh my God. I knew when the announcement was made that Sandy Duncan was not gonna be in, people were gonna be throwing things. And then I would have to walk out there. Um, at the end of that week, she was fine. She never missed a show. Uh, she made the Guinness Book of World Records for having played the role the most for any female. And she and I went out and leapt into a big bottle of wine together and just celebrated that, uh, you know, she had made it and I had made it, so. So I believe that Happy New Year had been the last Broadway show that you've done. So was there a reason that you decided to sort of stop doing the same kind of Broadway and off-Broadway shows or would you like to do another one even? If you no, no, definitely not do another one, no. But what happened was that even touring with Chicago, because I was out with it with the first national, then I did a bus and truck, and I was out with it off and on in different places for seven years or something, doing the role in different places. Um, a long time, maybe not seven years, but a long time. Um, I was saving myself all day. My body was starting to hurt. My joints were hurting. Um, so I was resting my body. I was resting my voice because... Thelma sings 11 songs in that. Um, I have a quirky little voice. I get laryngitis easily. Uh, I, I was just, I couldn't talk to people. I couldn't walk around town. And I thought, this is no way to live my life. So I made a, a major career change and I went, uh, I went back to school. Uh, I moved out of New York. I came to Connecticut. Uh, I was in a relationship that uh, deemed I come to Connecticut and um, I went back to school and my second love had been medicine. So I went back to school and got a nursing degree oh. and ended up as a psychiatric nurse. I bet you didn't know that. No, I, I didn't. I right. Didn't. And I loved it. I worked with uh, teenagers in crisis, dual diagnosis teenagers on a psych unit. So I did psychiatric nursing for 18 years while I was teaching theater. I oh. never have dropped my, never have dropped theater from my life ever ever yeah that's so, been a constant I but I did that that's how I have my house <laughs> you know I've kept my house so yeah I want to ask you about I know you were mentioning this to me in our first phone call your sort of passion for arts education uh, yeah. my path was that I easily slipped into uh working with uh uh 
a man named Jonathan Gilman at the uh, Greater Hartford Academy of the Arts up here, who had a group of teenagers who developed their own scenes based on adolescent issues and then would talk to the audience in character uh, and then out of character as uh, say a, a girl had a scene where she was being hit by her boyfriend or something and in character she would say well I love him I'm going to stay with him and then Jonathan would say okay out of character and she'd say are you kidding I would never stay with a guy that would hit me you know it, it was wonderful theater and I went over to Jonathan and I said, this is what I want to do. I was a nurse in this locked unit of a psychiatric hospital. And he said, who are you? I said, well, I did some shows in New York. My name is, he said, send me a resume. I said, okay. He called me the next day and he said, I'm hiring you at Greater Hartford Academy. I said, to do what? He said, I want you to start a musical theater program up here. And that's how I got started with teaching. That was over 30 years ago. I have never given up teaching. I love it. So bringing it to recently, um, what have you sort of been doing to stay involved in the arts and theater over quarantine and over? Oh, over quarantine. Um, I am writing a play. I had a, 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 my fourth career here is apparently is as a writer. Um, so I've been doing some writing. I had a play produced at a beautiful little theater up in Meredith, New Hampshire, the Winnipesaukee Playhouse. They are my theatrical family. I do a lot of work with them. I perform there. I teach for them. Uh, they're, they're musical theater students. And they produced a play of mine, that, which won uh, all the awards for the New Hampshire State Theater Awards that year, mm -hmm. uh, based on Camille Claudel. Now they've commissioned me to write another play. And that's what I've been struggling with, Charles. Uh, had the pandemic not happened, right, uh, it would have been a new play to be produced around the celebration of the suffragette movement, the 100-year celebration of the 19th Amendment. The pandemic did hit, so I put it away. Um, and then I did a rewrite and then I hated it. And then there were too many characters and there was, you know, I'm going through all the angst of having to develop a property uh, with a lot of characters in it because uh, these women were movers and shakers and, you know, you want to hit the highlights, but I also want to find the people that people don't always talk about. So I found some people, their new names, you know, so that's what I've been doing. And that kind of keeps me going creatively. I hope to be back up there next summer. This play will be produced. I will teach a musical theater intensive and I will perform in a play about Florence Foster Jenkins called Glorious. I get to sing off key, which would be great. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. And listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when we are joined by actor James Dibus. James Dibus starred in the original productions of Do I Hear Waltz and Pacific Overtures on Broadway, and his other Broadway credits include Via Galactica, The Scarlet Pimpernel, Sunset Boulevard, 42nd Street, and George M. He was assistant director on the musical Truckload, and his touring credits include Guys and Dolls, 42nd Street, Hello Dolly, and 
Pacific Overture's Camelot with John Raitt and more. He was also in Jesus Christ Superstar at Paper Mill Playhouse and in To Kill a Mockingbird regionally as Bob Ewell. So I hope you'll enjoy that episode. <laughs> 